Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Today, I want to start off by talking about the merchandise trade numbers we got for Ireland for the month of December. So that gives us a final picture of what happened during 2021. And um, bottom line is that the Irish economy continues to be a strong export-driven economy, um, total merchandise exports. And this is exports of goods. Uh, The whole services side, which is huge, is much more difficult to measure and quantify there's so much nebulous stuff in there. But the merchandise stuff is physical stuff. We're selling out of the country. $165.2 billion in total last year, up 1.9% on the previous year. Okay, so that's a decent export performance in the context of a world economy uh, that for a lot of the year was somewhat struggling with COVID and the impact of that. Uh, but I think the significance of Irish trade numbers, we've now got the first annual picture of the post-Brexit world for the Irish economy. And um, when you look at trade with the United Kingdom, because of the Northern Ireland Protocol and because of the different trading relationship we now have with Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, it is necessary to consider the two in isolation. So our exports to Great Britain up by 17.1%. That is despite COVID and our, or sorry, despite Brexit, I beg your pardon, and our exports to Northern Ireland up by 53.6%. And on the, so in other words, Ireland continues to export a lot of stuff into Great Britain 
and a, a huge growth in what we're selling into Northern Ireland. On the import side, I think is where you see the real impact of Brexit. Um, imports from Great Britain down by 13.4%, whereas imports from Northern Ireland are up by 64.8%. So there's, there's huge, huge growth in trade between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And um, the real impact of Brexit is felt on what we're actually buying from Great Britain. And indeed, I digress slightly, but if you look at the UK's trading relationship with the European Union, the European Union is still growing its exports into the United Kingdom, uh, but its imports from the United Kingdom are declining. And I think that's an indicator of the disproportionate impact Brexit is having on the United Kingdom rather than the rest of the European Union. But if, if you delve then, going back to the Irish stats today, if you delve back into uh, what's happening on the export side, um, food and live animal exports are down by almost 8%. So Irish food manufacturers are finding it more difficult to sell into the Great Britain market. No surprises there. That's exactly what would have been predicted. Uh, but the decline of 7.8% isn't exactly catastrophic. And um, the exports to other non-UK, non-Great Britain markets are growing quite strongly. So that's good. But the um, the reason why we've seen growth of overall exports to Great Britain is because of what's happening on the chemical and pharmaceutical side. Um, strong growth in exports into, the, into Great Britain on that front. On the import side, our imports of food and beverages from Great Britain down by 36%. So the, the, the trade in food from Great Britain to Ireland is being significantly impacted in both directions by Brexit. And I think in discussions we've had um, here and elsewhere over recent years about Brexit, uh, it was always pretty obvious that the food sector here would be the most exposed to whatever sort of Brexit outcome we got. And that's happening. But I would not describe it as a catastrophic situation. Um, the Irish food industry is coping pretty well despite the more difficult environment, but it, it, it is doing okay. And I think um, when you look at the huge decline in imports of food from Great Britain, you can see there, there is a significant opportunity for Irish food producers to engage in import substitution. So in other words, the stuff that we previously imported from Great Britain, and um, that's now becoming more difficult to find on our shelves, um, Irish producers can certainly step into that void and there, there is a business opportunity there. Um, one note of caution, you know, to summarize it all, um, trade between Ireland and Great Britain has been distorted, particularly on the import side. OK, uh, the export side is less obvious, but if you delve beneath, it's the food sector that's most exposed. The second feature is the huge growth in trade between um, the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland in both directions. And um, I, I suspect there is definitely an element there of um, importing stuff from Great Britain through Northern Ireland and selling stuff to Great Britain through Northern Ireland. So uh, the, the growth probably isn't as real as the figures suggest, but, 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 but that will require a little bit of analysis. But I, I just think... Um, it's an interesting take on 
the first 12 months of Brexit, um, certainly not proving catastrophic for the Irish economy or indeed for the Irish food sector. As you say, Jim, it's, it's having an effect. And I think I would summarise that by saying that it's broadly negative for some UK exporters. Um, it's negative for one particular sector in, in the Irish economy. Um, we talked about food and agriculture. But the effects of Brexit either way for both countries are not catastrophic, but they are real. The best metaphor that I've seen used for the consequences of Brexit for the British economy is that it's like a slow puncture. And I think that's still the best one to use, is that growth is less than it would otherwise have been. It doesn't mean that growth doesn't exist. It just means that the economy is worse off than it had to be. And of course, people don't really feel that, do they? They don't feel the counterfactual, as we call it. So it, it's difficult to prove. We can see it in the statistic in terms of the population at large reaching a reaching a conclusion about Brexit. It seems to be a bit of a shrug in terms of the negative effects. Because the thing that's missing, of course, are the sunny uplands that were promised. The Brexiteers promised all sorts of different things. And there are lots of video clips that you can find on various bits of the web uh, with all of the well-known Brexiteers promising things like lower energy prices as a result of Brexit, promising lower taxes as a result of Brexit. And of course, all of these things are not just not happening, they're um, going the, in the other direction. So it's completely ironic, I think, that, the, that they've had to appoint recently, Boris Johnson's had to appoint a minister for delivering Brexit sunny uplands. Um, that's not his official title, but let's use that one. And it's uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who as somebody wisely said that if he was a member of Gladstone's cabinet, he would still be a throwback to a previous century. Um, <laughs> so uh, we, 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 we continue to exist in fantasy land in the UK. Um, moving this discussion on, Jim, one of the things that I wanted to talk about today was the interaction of Ukraine and markets. And I know that you've got some interesting observations to make about markets. And we can have a little discussion about that in a moment. I just wanted to spend a minute, no more than that, really talking about Ukraine and some of the themes that have emerged in a lot of the things that I've read. There's a lot, we could devote a whole podcast to this, but I, there are some various writers that I've seen that I'm a huge fan of that, you know, one called Anne Applebaum, who writes for the Atlantic in the United States. And she's an expert on things Eastern European and indeed things Russian and has written a lot about this and has written an art, uh, a short piece as indeed others have done about the speech that Liz Truss, the British Foreign Secretary, should have made in Moscow when she went last week. This turned into essentially a photo opportunity for Liz Truss to wear fake fur parading around Red Square trying to look like Margaret Thatcher, which she has done several times. She clearly sees things like visits to Russia to alleviate the Ukraine crisis as just a, an Instagram opportunity. The thing that people focus on is what Putin is up to and whether or not any sanctions could bite and are, is the West responding appropriately to, to Putin. And of course, they're not. One of the, the many things that I've seen is people referring to um, a 5,000 word paper that Putin wrote last year about the whole Ukrainian-Russian thing, in which he described the Ukrainian people, the Belarusian people, and the Russian people essentially as one ethnic identity dating back to the 10th century to the original Rus people. And it's all to do with ethnicity and nativism, and very reminiscent, of course, of, of Aryanism in the 1930s and what the Germans and 
the Nazis in particular were up to, and indeed we see so many of the things like this throughout history th- around the world. Indeed, Brexit is a form of English nativism. Um, and I find that very, very sinister. And the people who draw attention to Putin's article point out that all of the politicians who are engaging with, with Russia are just ignoring everything that he seems to think and believe, and in particular believe that old-fashioned diplomacy can work. Um, and the fact is, these people point out, it won't. The only thing that you could ever do to um, the oligarchs in Russia is deprive them of their houses in Kensington and Chelsea, the private British schools for their children and their holiday opportunities in places like London and Miami. Because it's not just Britain, of course, that launders Russian money. Um, America is is also part of this as well. There are plenty of beachfront properties in Miami where these people have their holiday homes. So nothing will ever be done until the money go round is stopped. And these people are told that they can't live in London anymore. They can't park their assets in London anymore. They can't use Belgravian houses as safety de- quasi-safety deposit boxes. Basically, a lot of the people who s- seem to know about this um, are saying that we're getting it all wrong. But of course, it's great that there are some very early reports that Russia is pulling back some of its troops. The latest headline in the FT as we speak is that there's talk about movement of troops, but no actual evidence. So we shall see. The Economist has asked the question, has Russia blinked? or merely closed one eye to better focus on the gun sight with the open eye. We shall see. But of course, markets have reacted to this in both directions over the course of the last few days. Uh, We've had big sell-offs as a result of the Ukrainian crisis, combining with the inflation problem. But in the spirit of markets only ever being able to think about one thing at a time, it seems that the Ukraine thing is dominating equity markets at least, and also bond markets and foreign exchange markets. And on days when Ukraine looks bad, markets are going down. And on the day, the moment that we're speaking, markets are up because of this news or supposed news from from the front line on the, the Russian-Ukraine border. I know that you've wanted to draw our attention to an article in The Economist about markets and how vulnerable they are at the moment, not just to Ukraine, but to many other things. The cover story in The, in the Economist this week uh, takes a look at the jittery nature of equity markets at the moment, starts off by citing the fact that Wall Street has had its worst January since 2009, uh, with a decline of 5.3% in the month. It, it looks at the factors behind this sort of nervousness and vulnerability of markets at the moment. Uh, there's a very high level of techno-optimism, which we've often spoken about um, in the sense that a small number of tech stocks are really camouflaging the overall performance of the U.S. equity markets doing really well. But there, there is a danger now, and I guess Facebook or Meta, Meta uh, is indicative of, you know, perhaps this techno-optimism uh, isn't going to last. Uh, we're seeing very sudden price swings in the markets from day to day. Asset prices are clearly at very high levels at the moment, given what they've done over the last 10 or 11 years. We have... Obviously, something we've discussed a lot and that's dominating a lot of market sentiment at the moment, we are now in an environment of rising short and long-term interest rates. And so there's a lot of factors there that would make one nervous about the market performance. And then you throw in on top of that the fact that um, high-frequency trading in markets has become a much more important feature. You know, there are new platforms being created for owning assets 
the cost of trading has basically been re reduced to zero. So this drives this whole high-frequency trading thing and does create the sort of volatility and nervousness that we have um, come to know and love. The Economist does point out, I think, interestingly, that while the overall banking system looks in a much better place than it did um, in the run-up to 2007-2008, but they talk about the high level of leverage in the shadow banking system um, as a source of concern. Uh, they also point out, I think, an interest statistic that 53% of U.S. households today own shares. That's up from 37% in 1992. And I suppose the implication of that is that uh, the impact of a sharp equity market correction on consumer wealth and a consumer wealth effect uh, would be much more pronounced now than in the past. That's basically a summary of what The Economist is saying. And, and what it would do is definitely make you very nervous about where markets are at the moment. And of course, apart from all of those headwinds that we've spoken, that were mentioned there as in rising interest rates and so on, we have this um, extremely uncertain geopolitical backdrop with the Ukraine uh, top of the pile at the moment. So, yeah, uh, they, they always set the old cliche. One of the many cliches in markets is that they always climb a wall of worry or bull markets do anyway. And those, as you say, and as The Economist says, plenty to worry about at the moment. The list is a long one. And there isn't a very long list of things to be positive about, actually. You have to, you, one does struggle to find things to be cheerful about when it comes to both the economic and therefore the financial future. That said, I think that we could have had this conversation at any point in the last 10 years with the absence of, of, of the Ukrainian discussion at all, the, the way in which the US market has been concentrated on a few technology stocks, the valuation of the US equity market in particular, uh, troubles in emerging markets, the list is always a long one. So I'm possibly a little bit more sanguine than The Economist, but I have to acknowledge that it's very difficult to mount an argument against. I do think the days of the big double-digit returns that you get each year from equity markets, so, you know, really since um, with one or two exceptions every year since 2009, I think one might tentatively conclude that they are over and that if you are going to eke out any positive returns from equities going forward, those returns are going to be volatile and they're going to be lower over the next few years than they have been over the past few years. I think those are quite reasonable conclusions to draw. But I'm not apocalyptically bearish, I must say, in the way that others perhaps The Economist, but we also know that prominent commentators like Jeremy Grantham of GMO have described the current situation as the biggest bubble in history and thinks that the US equity market could go down 30, 40, 50%. So as always, we shall see. Forecasting the stock market is about as useful an exercise as forecasting the economy, Jim, as you and I both know. But let me ask you a direct question. If you had any money right now, what would you do with it? Say you won the lotto. Would you put any into the stock market? I would, yes, absolutely. Uh, because when I invest in stock market, I tend to do so with a long-term time horizon. Okay, um, well, I, I guess I'll be a little bit more specific than that. Um, I think I would wait my opportunity because when you get such volatility at the moment, when you have the Ukrainian situation evolving, um, I'd probably sit tight for the moment and wait for a more significant correction that might come and then, um, go back into markets. But I, I have a very long-term perspective on markets anyway. So if I did put money in, it would be for the long term. So I, I would not be unhappy about doing it at the moment. 
Um, I think one of the interesting arguments and discussions around markets, around the inflation situation, uh, revolves around the implications for interest rates. And as you know, there are two very different views of the world out there at the moment. You know, the I suppose the benign view would be that inflation is expected to ease later this year as energy prices and goods price inflation starts to ease. Um, likewise, as excess demand in a post-COVID world starts to normalize and ease back, um, supply side constraints uh, will iron themselves out. So all, all of those, in, in other words, all of these reopening frictions will start to diminish. Those factors would lead you to believe that um, interest rates will not have to rise um, very much to bring things back under control. And um, I, I was checking out in 2004 when the Federal Reserve tightened interest rates, it tightened by 425 basis points. You know, that was a pretty dramatic tightening at the time. Um, in 2015, the last phase of Federal Reserve tightening, the tightening um, was 225 basis points. So in other words, it took a lot less interest rate tightening to bring the situation back under control from the central bank's perspective. And the, the, the question, of course, is, is this trend decline in the magnitude of interest rate tightening required going to continue? So in other words, will the Federal Reserve and indeed other central banks have to tighten less this time than in previous interest rate cycles? And one argument I guess you could make is that this time around, central banks have more than interest rates at their disposal. They have another important monetary policy tool, which is called quantitative tightening. In other words, withdrawing all of that QE stimulus that has been put into the system. So in other words, quantitative tightening can actually uh, do some of the heavy lifting rather than increasing interest rates dramatically per se. Uh, but it's, uh, it's an interesting discussion. Yeah. I, and as you know, Jim, I think that they, that trend will continue. They, will, they won't be raising interest rates by four percentage points or more. Will they have to do the 200 that was the other episode in later 2000s that you mentioned there? I suspect that it will be less than that and that the environment will turn out, to, economically at least from that inflation perspective, a bit better than the more apocalyptic people are saying. One of the, th one of the things about Ukraine is, is that it's quite clear to me that markets in the short term are as crazy as they ever have been because they can only ever think about one thing at a time. They're going up and down with the news from Ukraine and have seemed almost to have pushed inflation to the back burner as a concern. Um, it'll come back once the Ukraine situation has resolved itself one way or the other, of course. But it, it, markets are funny things and trying to analyze them in the short term is a mug's game. Um, Chris, can I? I know you're um, anxious to talk about uh, some UK demographic revisions that were made today and published today. Um, and I might lead you into that by referring to an article in the Financial Times yesterday by a guy called Rukar Sharma. Um, and the title of that article is Slower Growth and Higher Inflation, a Hallmark of the Post-COVID World. Okay, and um, he, he touches on a couple of points here. One is that he's trying to explain the lack of growth in the global economy in the 2010s, where global growth averaged 2.5% per annum. And he puts this down to the four Ds, which are depopulation, declining productivity, de-globalization, de and debt. Okay, 
So that's the explanation he gives for this slower growth. But but going back to that whole inflationary story, you know, he he obviously makes the point that inflation has returned, or, or at least he makes the point that inflation has obviously returned, uh, driven by temporary supply side shortages and heavy stimulus. Uh, but he believes it is likely to be sustained by shrinking labor forces and rising wages. Okay, and I guess the final point he makes that ties back to the market discussion we've just been having is that with inflation back, and he obviously believes that inflation uh, is back um, on a semi-permanent basis at least, but with inflation back, he believes that investors will who have grown accustomed to central banks propping up markets at the first sign of trouble over recent years, they will need to wane themselves off this belief and wane themselves off this constant state support. So in other words, he is arguing, I think, even though he doesn't come out and explicitly say it, um, that um, the lack of central bank support of markets will create a much more difficult equity market environment. But the, the piece uh, that I want to turn back to you on now is the depopulation one that he believes is a structural change in the world economy that will deliver um, lower growth in the long term. Yeah, I'll come on to that in a second. One of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this article was that um, I've no idea why the FT publishes this particular writer. Uh, The great um, long-dead economist Friedrich von Hayek uh, once gave a talk. It was actually his Nobel Prize acceptance speech that he called pretense to knowledge. And he accused much of the economics profession of doing precisely that, pretending to know about stuff, stuff that we don't actually know anything about. And this particular journalist often seems to write in these flowery terms about these great drivers of uh, financial markets, of economies, things like demographics, things like the long-term inflation outlook, depopulation, all these themes that sound grandiose, that sound as if you know what you're talking about. And the, the issue I have with it is that nobody knows how to talk about this with any degree of precision or knowledge. These are things about which we know very, very little. If you take the demographic thing as one example of this, many a career grave has been dug by people making demographic projections on the basis of pseudoscience in that they look at data, they build models, they then forecast, and the forecasts always turn out to be wrong because you're talking about very, very large um, numbers being driven by very small parameter changes in your model, to be technical about it for a second. And you're talking about stuff that is very difficult to know. You know, it's like physicists searching for a theory of everything. Um, they periodically have to tear down their discipline because they find out that their predictions are wrong. Um, so it is even more so in this area. And I think when you're talking about this sort of thing, you need to be a lot more humble than somebody writing these articles regularly saying, this is why the world turned out the way in which it did, and therefore this is what is going to happen next. Both sides of that story are often complete bollocks, if you ask me. But anyway, that's my beef. Take the argument that he was making about depopulation and demographic influences on inflation. The um, Office for National Statistics, the, the main agency for producing UK economic numbers, updated a lot of its demographic projections, suitably caveated, much more humble than journalists write about these things, updated them all today. And the headline is that the demographic pressure on the state, on the state's finances, look like they're going to be much less going forward than they previously thought. 
So the first thing they would say is what they previously thought has turned out to be wrong, because it often does. So these forecasts are often not worth the paper they're written on. But it's interesting what they're saying at the moment runs counter to everything that Sharma was saying, in that it's he was talking about depopulation. They're revising upwards their population estimates going forward for the UK, mostly because of immigration. That thing that was supposed to have been done away with by Brexit shows every sign of increasing, not decreasing. And that's not to, be, to do anything to do with the EU. The immigrants from the EU, as we know, because of Brexit, are down. But it's immigration from the rest of the world. So more immigration means more people. More people of a younger, more highly qualified kind mean that uh, the, 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 the fiscal pressure from changing ratio between workers and pensioners, that's favourable for future chancellors of the Exchequer. That's a tick. People are having less babies in the UK, and um, that trend seems to have accelerated. So the fiscal dividend from that is that they're talking explicitly about the number of schools that are going to have to close in future years. And so the number of teachers is going to go down, the amount of money they're going to have to spend on school buildings and land, that's going to have to go down. So it, it, was, it was really interesting that, A, the, the revisions talked about how they got it wrong in the past and how um, the need, for example, to put the pension age up dramatically in the UK might not actually be there to quite the same extent going forward if these latest projections are right. And of course, these latest projections will almost certainly turn out to be wrong. But it's just interesting that you have in successive days in the FT two diametrically uh, opposed articles in terms of the conclusions that they have reached. Now, that's enough of me slagging off other people who, who write about these things. And I apologize if I was rude about a particular author. Um, as, but as you can probably tell, I, I do feel quite strongly about, about the way in which that chap does write about things and the pretense to knowledge. I want to switch tack completely now, Jim, and talk about some of the responses that we've had to our recent podcasts. And there's an emerging theme. And that emerging theme is from several very thoughtful responses that people have either emailed to us, stuck up on Twitter, or actually put in the comments section of our Substack site. And anybody interested in this emerging theme, um, I would point them to our Substack site to see the sort of thing that I'm about to talk about. And if I can perhaps paraphrase or over-summarize what a lot of these people are saying is that there is a demographic, that word again, of maybe 30-something-year-olds who are writing to us saying, look, I've got a good job. Often they appear to be in the tech industry or related industries. They quote themselves and their partners as having very good salaries. Um, by my reckoning, I've, I've seen numbers that approach two, three times average earnings in, in Ireland. And they say they're still screwed, uh, particularly from a housing perspective, not just housing. They do mention health as well um, in terms of their access to it. But it's the housing thing more than anything else that seems to really bug them. And they talk about having this these high incomes, both themselves and their partners, and still not being able to afford a good house in Dublin. And they know all the problems associated with the housing market. They, they understand what we've said, that it's complicated, that there are global factors as well as domestic factors. Um, but they put they nevertheless, and this is, again, I'm paraphrasing, still put a lot of the blame on Fine Gael in particular, but Fine Gael, Fianna Foyle in general, um, they accept uh, that the Shinners will uh, still find it as difficult as Fianna Foyle and Fine Gael to put right, but they're willing to give the Shinners a go. 
and in a way hold their noses and vote for Sinn Féin in order to solve the housing crisis. Two questions for you, Jim. Do you think that that's a fair summary of the of the, the developing overarching theme meme that we've gotten to our recent uh, podcasts about these issues? And what do you think about that story that uh, we, you know, the these young people with very real issues, with with thoughtful comments, are nevertheless going to vote for Sinn Féin in the hope that the housing problem will be cured by them? Well, I, I did say, Chris, in a podcast some time back that I believed it was inevitable that Sinn Féin would form the next government. And um, we got I got one response at that stage saying I was being way too premature, that there was a lot of political water to cross under the bridge before you could jump to that sort of conclusion. Some months down the road later, I become more convinced um, about that because um, it's, it's re- really reflecting those comments from people in a certain age demographic who should, in theory, be in a reasonably comfortable position in our society and are not. And um, we talk about the housing market, and this ties into this whole intergenerational transfer of wealth um, from uh, the young to the old. And that was raised again in recent weeks with the um, Joint Oireachtas Committee arguing against a lifting of the pension age from 66 to 67 and ultimately to 68 so that is effectively a transfer of wealth from the younger generations to the older generations. Uh, the housing market, likewise, is a similar transfer. So the victims of that whole process are the ones that um, are very thoughtfully, um, and you know we welcome it very much. They are coming on our Substack site and making those sorts of comments. And I think it does reflect a very strong reality out there And indeed, whatever I think about reflecting, all one has to do is look at the opinion polls um, showing strong support for Sinn Féin, but particularly strong support in certain age demographics, the 20s, the 30s, particularly, you know, these are the people that are really being squeezed at the moment um, by uh, the housing market and everything else. So I I think it's a very valid reflection of what's going on in our society and our political system at the moment and i go back to my point uh, it seems to me inconceivable that Sinn Féin will not form um, the next government uh, with the support of god knows who else but um, i think that's where we're going so uh, as i say really welcome this sort of feedback from our listeners and um, keep it coming i just would conclude by saying i think it's false framing in the sense that uh, the, assu- the underlying assumption is that the housing market is in a relatively short number of years amenable to policy changes that will solve a lot, if not all, of the problems that these young people face. And I would assert that no matter who is in charge, will find it just as difficult to achieve meaningful change for these young people. And that at the end of Sinn Féin's first term of office, here's a prediction, here's a forecast, Jim, we'll still be talking about how difficult it is for a young person on two to three times average incomes to buy a decent house in Dublin. Yeah, Chris, no, I I agree totally with that. But um, I I think that there is a sense out there, well, it hasn't been fixed by FFG, and that's Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, who have dominated power here for a long, long time. So let's take a risk. Let's try something else. 
That's the meme. That's that's yeah. definitely it. That if, if there was a one line summary of all these comments, that's it. Give the other give the people who say that they're going to cure this problem, give them a chance. And that is a very simple, powerful message that that definitely is cutting through. Wouldn't it be amazing, actually, if it worked? <laughs> I don't think well, it would, but wouldn't it be amazing? Of course, they, they may have a magic box of tricks up their sleeves that could make it work. But uh, one of the things I would say is that if if the property market does cheapen up in some way, if they if they if housing in Dublin does become affordable, I would suspect it would be because of a lot of other things that have happened that have driven house prices in a relative, if not absolute, sense downwards. And there are lots of ways that can happen. A recession would do that for you, Jim. Much, much higher mortgage rates would do that for you, Jim. Uh, the 1980s, when I first moved to Ireland and where your generation was going the other way, was a time when housing in Dublin, at least from my perspective, coming from London, um, was very attractive and it was very affordable. But the reason was, of course, was that everybody else was going the other way and nobody else apart from me was buying a property in Dublin. And it was very, very cheap, certainly relative to anything that we see today. So circumstances can certainly change to make housing more affordable um, in, in one sense. But if you haven't got a job or you've had to emigrate, as the previous um, safety valves, if you like, were, were, were seen, um, then, again, that's got nothing to do with what the government does, or it, it might do, but it might not be achieving that housing market that you thought that you were going to. The, the, the fundamental issue is, I think, that Ireland is an incredibly attractive place to live. Uh, people come rather than go in the way that they did in the 1980s, and indeed for much of the 1990s. And the, the problems that Ireland has are as much a problem of success rather than cack-handed housing policies. There have been housing policy mistakes, absolutely. There are things that you can do. But the idea that you can turn this thing around in a few short years is complete nonsense. Or, or the idea that you can turn this thing around in a very benign way, so that you have still a very successful economy, low mortgage rates, and abundant cheap housing, that one for me is the bird, is for the birds. I think we'll cut, leave it there, Jim. This is undoubtedly a topic that we will come back to um, time and time again. But thanks again for a great discussion. Yeah, thank you, Chris. And I just reiterate, we really welcome the comments we get from our listeners. So keep it going, folks. Thank you very much. Absolutely. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power. On the other hand, we hope you enjoyed it. If you did please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.